Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, January 10th, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. 2023 was the hottest year on record. German farmers block roads in protest against agricultural policies. Macron appoints France's youngest ever prime minister. Antony Blinken meets with Israeli officials. Taiwan's presidential frontrunner vows to maintain the status quo. Ecuador declares a state of emergency after a drug lord escapes prison. Trump claims immunity from prosecution in the Georgia election case. Nikki Haley narrows her gap with Trump in New Hampshire. Norway approves the world's first commercial deep-sea mining. And South Korea outlaws the dog meat trade. A new report says that 2023 was likely the hottest in 100,000 years. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, CBC, France 24, Copernicus, and ABC News. 2023 was likely the warmest in 100,000 years, according to the European Union's Copernicus Climate Change Service. 2023's global temperatures broke the previous year's record significantly. According to reporting from the service, 2023 was 1.48 degrees Celsius warmer than the pre-industrial average, surpassing the previous record in 2016 of 1.25 degrees Celsius. Deputy head of the EU Climate Agency, Samantha Burgess, said that last year differed from others because it was the first year with all days over one degree warmer than the pre-industrial period, and that temperatures during 2023 likely exceeded those of any period in at least the last 100,000 years. According to the report, every month from June to December in 2023 was warmer than in previous years, with July and August being the warmest months on record. Researchers pointed to greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuels and El Nino weather conditions as reasons behind the rise in global temperatures. The report details how strong El Nino conditions are expected through at least April, with global temperatures expected to continue to rise. Researchers said that the 1.5 degrees Celsius target set by countries in Paris in 2015 will likely be surpassed for the first time in 2024. I would like to see this earth, this world, this humanity go in a good direction. Thanks, Melissa. Narrative A on this story comes from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association. With all the doom and gloom around climate change, it's worth noting that the impacts of a warming planet are not entirely bad. As temperatures increase, agricultural conditions in some parts of the planet may actually improve as the growing seasons will be longer. A loss of Arctic sea ice would also benefit commercial shipping, as the Northwest Passage will be accessible for longer periods of the year. The question is whether the costs will outweigh the benefits, but there will be benefits nonetheless that often get overlooked. Here's Narrative B from CBC. 2023's warming is alarming. As the planet continues to warm, climate events like wildfires, hurricanes, droughts, and floods are likely to get worse. This wasn't just a wayward data point, as 2023 smashed previous tallies. Granted, there was an El Nino pattern that contributed to the high tally and will probably subside before 2024 ends. But the dreaded 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold is likely to be surpassed in the next 12 months. There's a real chance that hazardous climate impacts could multiply in the year ahead. 
and a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 95% chance there will be at least 2 degrees Celsius of global warming by the year 2100. Melissa, we pride ourselves. It's our raison d'etre here at Verity to be unbiased and respect all the different, you know, narrative spins and all that stuff. But my personal bias, if I have one, is an anti-mosquito platform. Mm. So that's really what I'm worried about here. You know, the, the, the globe warming, cooling, that's fine. I don't like mosquitoes. And I think a warm earth means more mosquitoes, probably, right? Oh, for sure. More yeah. mosquito mommies and eggs and water to sit around in. Yeah. Better get so, that spray out, Scott. I just don't I I I just hate them. I hate mosquitoes and everything. I mean, I I don't I don't like bats, but I worship at the altar of bats. So like when I see mm. bats flying around, it's like, yeah. Yes, you get, get them. Those. You get those guys. Yeah. 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 yeah, they're not good for they're not so good for humans. All the malaria and the um, no, it's bad. Yeah, and uh, and also I don't like the idea that you know I'm a I'm an apex predator, Melissa. I'm at the top mm-hmm. of the food chain. This but is true. On the mosquito food chain, we're at the bottom. We're like the we're the first thing. Yes, you know, it's, large it's predator. Mosquitoes eats us, and then something else eats the mosquito, and something else like we're the bottom of the blood food chain, and I don't like that. Yeah, well, if you weren't such an apex predator, it might not be as bad of a problem as other humans i have seen you like eat a eat a cow leg a raw cow leg just rip through with your bare teeth and yeah it's unappetizing yeah know? yeah unappetizing for you but but you know, <laughs> you're not the only one yeah. here so that's yeah. true that's true even the cow feels Apologies. yikes <laughs> and it was, i know it is effective in some way I like these guys are just like beating the fire in the picture <laughs> like uh, keep it away from my house what else yeah. can i do I'm going to pick up a flammable stick and beat the fire with it. And that's, yeah. you know, and this, I think the other guy has like a, a flashlight in his hand or something. He's shining. I don't know what he's doing, but it's like, good luck, fellas. It's good. Didn't he get his prepared hero blanket from Instagram? His, so, fire, what, tell his me, kitchen, what's his a, kitchen what's fire a blanket? hero blanket? Oh, that well, you wrap around yourself if there's a, a fire? Oh, you can do that. But this one's just a kitchen version where you just you yank it out of there instead of a, a fire extinguisher, which no one ha- knows how to use and makes a right. big mess. And also... it was all from like 20 years ago. Like we have a fire extinguisher. Yes. It's expired. Like it's just going to. Oh, gonna, yeah. Like it's just going to make years, like a, right? a, a hilarious clown nose noise when I shoot it off, <laughs> which will be <laughs> funny, will but come the house out. Is, is burning down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And as long as you get out, okay. It'll be yeah. worth it. Oh, it's funny. Yeah. Did you hear that? <laughs> Did you hear the hilarious fire extinguisher? <laughs> you did pay the, uh, you did renew the insurance policy, right? Right? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I just invested in whoopee cushions instead. I figured oh, that yeah. out. <laughs> oh, no. So when you call your insurance company, a clown noise hap- just happens. Yes. They're like, yeah. Wah, wah. <laughs> I know a cl- an actual clown that went to clown college. Mm, like in Europe? Oh, I don't Seattle? know where I don't think they went to like miming school like at Sorbonne or something. That would be cool. I don't know where the clown college was, but hmm. this person like at least took a semester in clowning. I don't know how many letters come after their clown name, you know, or w- what kind of <laughs> certifications they have. Right. But um but they they have some formal clown training. Yes. And uh, you know, it's pretty serious actually. I mean, it is. I- ironically, yeah. It's all about failure and and um Oh, and sharing your your failures and vulnerabilities, yeah. like true vulnerable failures oh, on stage. That's know. what we like to see. Jeez. Yeah. German I, farmers block roads in protest of agriculture policies. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, DW, CNBC, Daily Mail, Al Jazeera, and the Associated Press. Farmers across Germany kicked off a week of protest Monday, blocking off major roads with convoys of tractors. The demonstrations come in opposition to Chancellor Olaf Scholz's plans to abolish farming car and diesel tax breaks. Protesters first gathered at Berlin's Brandenburg Gate on Sunday evening with thousands of registered tractors having since blocked the center's of major cities such as Berlin, Hamburg, Cologne, and Bremen. The tractor blockades add to week-long protests across different sectors in Germany. Schultz's coalition government proposed eliminating tax breaks for the purpose of for the purchase of agricultural equipment and scrapping diesel fuel subsidies after Germany's constitutional court decided that COVID funds couldn't be redistributed to other areas. Therefore, the government had to cut tens of billions of dollars in spending. The initial backlash prompted the German government to scale down its policies targeting the agriculture sector, with it announcing last week that tax exemptions for agricultural vehicles would remain and that fuel subsidies would be phased out gradually. However, the German Farmers Association said this is not adequate. The protests have seen disruptions across the country, including at a Volkswagen car plant in Emden and a blockade last week prevented Vice Chancellor Robert Habeck from getting off a ferry. Meanwhile, workers at a major German railway union are scheduled to engage in protests of their own on Wednesday amid a wage dispute with rail operator Deutsche Bahn. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. We'll start these spins with a left narrative from Politico. A dangerous far-right backlash is sweeping Germany, and these farmers' protests are part of a broader anti-government movement. While some of the people protesting may be earnest farmers upset about specific agricultural policies, there are many right-wing actors who are exploiting anger and promoting dangerous ideologies. And the right narrative spin from European conservative. Germany's left-wing globalist government continues to show that it doesn't value its farmers or even its workers in general. Elitist leaders have looked down on the working class, labeling them as right-wing extremists for far too long. As Olaf Scholz's coalition grows weaker by the day, Germans are desperate for an alternative party that puts their interests first. Kielis brings us another nerd narrative, this one saying there's a 50% chance that Germany will elect a new chancellor by January 8, 2026. Trenton, New Jersey. Famously, it's where Washington crossed the Delaware, that famous picture, mm. and, you know, the Hessians and all that. Sorry, Germany. I didn't mean to bring that up in your story. But... They have some sort of monuments there celebrating that major historical thing, and they're run down, and they're fixing them all up for the, you know, whatever, 240th anniversary or whatever of that happening. But uh, there, I was re- the article I was reading at the very end was like, all these improvements are going to be paid for with leftover COVID funds. It's like, oh. wait a minute. Shouldn't we just give those back? Like, what is that? Like, I'm all for Washington crossing the Delaware and surprising a Hessian, but like- is that what that was for? Like, what are we doing? Shouldn't we give that money back or yeah, something? Yeah, wait, so this is just, be- like, this is like payroll protection for bureaucrats that they're now just going to say, well, we'll lose it, so let's Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess that's, that sounds like what it is. Now, of course, this farming initiative is much, much bigger deal than this New Jersey fireworks for Washington. But still, there at least needs to be a discussion about where that money is going to go. Something should be at least talked about of these COVID funds, at least in America, getting put, because as I understand it, we're facing pretty severe inflation, budget shortfalls, things like that. Shouldn't that money just go back and take care of those things? 
Yeah, like let's let's pay off some debt, you know. Yeah, instead <laughs> of replacing the like red, white, and blue uh, little half circle things that hang off the side of the monument, I'm just, that's what I'm picturing. Oh right. well, they were on sale. Oh good, so yeah. It was like just a you know post Christmas clearance. So right, yeah. If you buy you red, do? white, and blue stuff on July fifth, that's a good time. Yeah, that's a good. That's yes. True. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. Get it in the winter. No one's thinking about their American, you know, centennial paraphernalia yeah. in January. France's youngest ever first gay prime minister. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, The Guardian, Fox News, Wall Street Journal, The Telegraph, and France 24. French President Emmanuel Macron on Tuesday appointed Education Minister Gabriel Attal, 34, to be the nation's youngest ever and first openly gay prime minister following the resignation of Elizabeth Bourne, who said Macron requested she step down on Monday. Atal, the son of a Jewish lawyer and filmmaker father and Orthodox Christian mother, was among a select group of young, well-to-do men who were picked to join Macron's youthful campaign. He attended the prestigious Ecole Alsacienne private school, where he said he was bullied, after which he obtained his Master's in Public Affairs from Sciences Po University. He was a member of the Socialist Party before joining Macron's new coalition in 2016, where he was government spokesman from 2020 to 2022. After that, he was appointed budget minister before rising to education minister, one of the most prestigious positions in the French government. As education minister, he banned long robes worn by Muslims, arguing that they went against secularism. Born, 62, helped push Macron's pension overhaul by invoking special constitutional powers. But in the face of backlash over rising immigration issues, her liberal government tried proposing a bill to make it easier to deport foreigners. After more restrictions were added to the bill, right-wing leader Marine Le Pen painted it as a win for her party, demoralizing Macron's faction. Polls show Atal is one of the most popular French politicians, However, Le Pen's party is polling better than Macron's by around 10%. This comes ahead of the European Parliament elections this summer. In the meantime, Atal said his agenda will focus on the economy, employment, and the youth. Thanks, Melissa. Narrative A comes from the New York Times. France didn't necessarily need a new prime minister as the economy has fared well against inflation and foreign investment remains strong, but it did need a fresh face. Atal's appointment isn't just historic, it also brings youthful energy and quick wit at a time when France needs to be pulled together. European Conservative brings us Narrative B. Commentators on both sides of the French political aisles have agreed that Atal will be no different policy-wise than his predecessor. Representing the same agenda as Macron, he's merely the next puppet to do his bidding. If the French president looks to take advantage of Atal's popularity and put on a centrist stance that appeases both sides. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's an 11% chance that Macron will dissolve the French National Assembly before the end of his term. Ever been to France, Melissa? I have not. Is it on your list or is it far, Oh, for far sure. Yeah. For sure, for sure. Yeah, when, if you're going to go to Europe, might as well get it all done, which I didn't do, so I don't know why I'm saying that. <laughs> but if you did, then you might as well, which you didn't. Right, gotcha. Right, right. Blinken meets with Israeli officials on the war and the return of Palestinians to North Gaza. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Axios, the Times of Israel, the Associated Press, Jerusalem Post, and Al Jazeera. 
U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli War Cabinet, and other officials on Tuesday amid an ongoing diplomatic push by the U.S. to solidify Israeli plans for the war in Gaza and thaw escalating regional tensions. Blinken said he had secured promises from four Arab nations and Turkey to support reconstruction in Gaza after the war, but said the countries also wanted to see an end to the fighting in Gaza and concrete steps toward the establishment of a Palestinian state. During a one-on-one meeting with Netanyahu, Blinken reportedly told the prime minister that Israel must stop causing additional harm to civilians in Gaza. Blinken affirmed U.S. support for Israel's right to prevent attacks like October 7th, but stressed the importance of avoiding further civilian harm and protecting civilian infrastructure in Gaza. Blinken was also expected to push for an imminent transition to the next phase of the war, reportedly involving lower-intensity conflict. One of Blinken's goals is to ensure that Palestinians displaced from the north of the Gaza Strip can return to the area. It was reported on Monday that Israeli officials were set to tell Blinken that, Though they accepted Palestinians returning to the north in principle, Israel would only agree to it as part of another hostage exchange deal with Hamas. Blinken's emphasis on a Palestinian return to the north comes as the Biden administration has expressed concern regarding statements from right-wing Israeli ministers calling for Palestinians to be pushed out of the Strip. Blinken's visit also came as regional tensions escalated and the war in Gaza continued. Israeli forces, though lowering the intensity of their operations in north Gaza, have focused on the center and south of the Strip. On the Lebanese border, Hezbollah on Tuesday said it launched explosive drones toward the Israeli army's northern command in the town of Safed, the deepest attack into Israel since the war began three months ago. Hezbollah said the attack was retaliation for the killings of the deputy head of Hamas's political bureau, Salah al-Aruri, last week, and a senior Hezbollah commander on Monday. Israeli forces also experienced one of the deadliest days of the war in Gaza on Monday, reportedly losing nine soldiers in three separate incidents in Al-Barej in central Gaza and Kanyanis. An additional eight soldiers were also reportedly wounded. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has killed over 23,000 people in the Gaza Strip, the majority of whom were women and children. The official Israeli death toll on October 7th stands at over 1,100 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. We'll begin this round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative from Politico. The U.S. is doing everything it can to both ensure that Israel can eliminate Hamas's military capabilities and prevent regional escalation. Israel must be able to defend itself from terrorist attacks, whether from Gaza or elsewhere and is taking the right steps to wind down its military operations in Gaza, as it is not in the U.S. or Israel's best interest to see the conflict escalate. Nevertheless, the U.S. is prepared to defend its allies in the region and deter threats to regional and global security. And the pro-Israel narrative from Jerusalem Post. Though this has been a tragic war, Israel must eliminate Hamas and restore deterrence with Iran and its proxy Hezbollah. Hezbollah is a terrorist army with far greater military capabilities than Hamas. And Israel cannot allow its citizens residing in the north to live under the constant threat of terrorist attacks. The UN resolution that ended the 2006 war with Hezbollah has failed to ensure Israel's security. And if some sort of new arrangement is not made, Israel will be forced to intervene. Likewise, in Gaza, Hamas's military capabilities must be eliminated to ensure Israel's security. Here's a pro-Palestine narrative from Middle East Eye. 
Israel continues to demonstrate that its war is not against Hamas or Hezbollah, but against the Palestinian and Lebanese people as a whole. Nowhere in Gaza is safe, and Israel has effectively rendered the north of the Strip unlivable. Israel is killing Palestinians at an unprecedented rate and clearly wants to make the Gaza Strip unlivable. Though the U.S., Israel's biggest ally, wants to minimize the war's intensity, it must instead exert more pressure to end the war completely. And we have a narrative D from Al-Mayadeen. Hezbollah will deal with Israel's belligerent and aggressive behavior at a time it deems most advantageous, as the Lebanese resistance does not react to security incidents, but makes painstaking calculations to both deter Israel from violating Lebanon's sovereignty and avoid an unnecessary and destructive conflict. Israel's leadership should keep in mind that Hezbollah is more than ready for an all-out war and can inflict serious losses. Israel, backed by the U.S., is committing atrocious crimes in Gaza to which Hezbollah has been forced to respond. And here's the nerd narrative from Metaculus, saying there's a 50% chance that Benjamin Netanyahu will cease to be Prime Minister of Israel by December 2024. Our next story brings us to Taiwan's elections, where the frontrunner vows to maintain the status quo and engage with China. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, the Financial Times, CNA, Focus Taiwan, NBC, and the Japan Times. Taiwan's leading presidential hopeful, Vice President William Lai, told foreign reporters on Tuesday that his potential administration would continue to preserve the island's de facto independence by any means necessary. However, he would be open to engaging with Beijing under the principles of equality and dignity. The candidate for the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, also delivered his strongest remarks to date, claiming that Beijing has employed propaganda, military intimidation, cognitive warfare, and fake news to interfere in Taiwan's elections and secure an alleged China-friendly puppet government. Accusations Beijing has dismissed. Hours later, Taiwan issued an emergency alert to inform its citizens that a Chinese satellite was flying over its southern airspace after China successfully launched its Einstein probe satellite, which will reportedly collect astronomical data. As the English version of the message inaccurately warned of a missile flyover and satellite launches are said to never have triggered an island-wide alert, Opposition parties were quick to denounce the government and demand explanations. This comes as voters will choose between Lai Kuomintang's Hao Yi and Taiwan People's Party Ko Win Jae on Saturday to replace Tsai Ing-wen, hey. who has completed her maximum two terms in office as the leader of the self-ruling Beijing-claimed island. Though the latest polls consistently show Lai ahead in the presidential race, many analysts expect his party to lose the majority in the legislative yuan a scenario that would curb his ability to run the country, including passing new laws and budgets. Thanks, Melissa. We have a pro-China narrative from China Daily. Lai shouldn't expect to achieve different results if he plans to continue his party's policy to militarize Taiwan, seek secession, and resist reunification, particularly as that policy has escalated cross-strait tensions in the first place. As long as U.S.-backed pro-independence forces remain in control of the island, war will always be a looming threat. And Voice of America brings us an anti-China narrative. It's crystal clear that Beijing has aggravated cross-strait tensions, including carrying out gray zone operations 
in the hope that Taiwanese citizens will be intimidated into supporting the China-friendly KMT. Hopefully, the nation will not cave into this obnoxious strategy that has already failed several other times. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 55% chance that China will annex at least half of Taiwan before 2050 if the DPP wins the 2024 Taiwanese election. Ecuador declares a curfew after drug lord Fido escapes prison cell. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, BBC News, Crisis 24, Reuters, and Al Arabia. On Monday, Ecuador's newly elected president, Daniel Naboa, declared a state of emergency and imposed a curfew following the prison cell escape of drug lord Jose Adolfo Macias, a.k.a. Fido, who is described as extremely dangerous. Violence also broke out across multiple prisons in Ecuador. Fido is the leader of the powerful Los Chineros gang and is being held at Guayaquil, a maximum security facility. His absence from his assigned area of the prison was discovered on Sunday. It's unclear how long he has been missing and if he has left the facility or is hiding in another area within it. Under the curfew mandate, residents must remain inside between 11 p.m. and 5 a.m with exceptions for travel for emergencies, emergency workers to travel to and from work, and individuals traveling to airports for flights departing during this time. At the time of the declaration, President Naboa said he signed the decree so that the armed forces have all the political and legal support for their actions. He went on to say the time is over when drug trafficking convicts, hitmen, and organized crime dictate to the government what to do. In another government action, the prosecutor's office announced that it has launched an investigation into the escape that has already resulted in criminal charges against two prison workers for their role in the escape. Fido's escape comes as Ecuador's prisons face frequent rioting, escape attempts, and unrest. The state of emergency is likely to be the first step in several actions aimed at reducing security threats throughout the country. Thank you, Scott. We'll start the spins with a narrative A from Barron's. Daniel Noboa has taken the helm in his presidency with the intent to end violent crime in Ecuador. He recently announced that two he recently announced that two new prisons will be built far away from the violent centers where brutality has taken over in recent years. His long-term plan is to restore the country to the peace it saw before being overrun with drugs and violence from Colombia and Peru. Narrative B comes from The Guardian. The politicians and police of Ecuador have proven that they cannot be trusted. Families and business owners are left to fend for themselves against the violent gangs that have infiltrated their neighborhoods. They are forced to pay the criminals their meager earnings, and if they refuse, they must pay with your life or the life of a loved one. Naboa faces tremendous odds at bringing about law and order, especially when organized crime is so deeply tied to systemic corruption. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus says there's a 90% chance that the next president of Ecuador will remain in office through the end of their term. Trump seeks to dismiss election interference cases. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, Washington Post, Daily Caller, Associated Press, BBC News, and CNBC. Former U.S. President Donald Trump filed a trio of motions Monday requesting a Georgia judge to dismiss felony racketeering charges against him related to his criminal election interference case, arguing that the case violated presidential immunity, double jeopardy, and due process protections. Trump attorney Steve Sadow made his arguments to the Fulton County Superior Court, arguing that the former president's efforts to challenge the results of Georgia's elections in 2020 
were at the heart of his presidential duties. The motions also allege that a lead prosecutor in the case, Nathan Wade, was a romantic partner of Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis and that Wade met with Biden's White House counsel in 2022, before the indictments were issued against Trump. Trump's team is requesting to disqualify Wade from the case. Meanwhile, Trump appeared before the Federal Appeals Court in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday to argue that the federal election interference case brought by Special Counsel Jack Smith should also be dismissed due to presidential immunity protections. A three-judge panel, two of whom were President Joe Biden's appointees, asked Trump pointed questions about the implications of his claims and expressed skepticism about his team's arguments. Trump argued that you can't have a president without immunity. The frontrunner to win the Republican nomination for president claims that his actions after the 2020 election were done to fight against voter fraud and promote free elections. Thanks, Melissa. The pro-Trump narrative comes from the Federalist. Democrats are desperate to take down Trump and stop him from cruising to victory in 2024. The plan has been obvious from the start, but we now know that a lead prosecutor and romantic partner of partisan Democrat Fonnie Willis has been meeting with the Biden White House before Georgia's indictments even came out. Not only are corrupt prosecutors targeting Trump, but they're also enriching their corrupt friends in the process. Here's the anti-Trump narrative from MSNBC. Trump is as wrong as he is desperate, claiming that he could essentially commit any crime with impunity since he served as president. While there is some presidential immunity for executive decisions that presidents make, it is absurd to claim that Trump's efforts to overturn the election results were part of a president's job description. Trump was acting as a candidate during his efforts to undermine Georgia and the U.S.'s democracy. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 60% chance that Donald Trump will be convicted of at least one count in his federal court cases before the end of 2024. And in a related story, Nikki Haley narrows her gap with Trump to single digits in New Hampshire. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Forbes, The Hill, USA Today, The Washington Times, and Daily Caller. The latest CNN University of New Hampshire poll found that former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley has closed the gap with former President Donald Trump in the GOP primary race in New Hampshire to seven percentage points, 39 percent to 32 percent, with two weeks to go until the vote. She has gained 12 points since the previous survey in the second in the nation primary state, which was released in November. Haley has grown popular, especially among ideologically moderate and independent voters after Republican Governor Chris Sununu endorsed her. The other Republican candidates lag far behind in the New Hampshire poll, with former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie in third with 12%, followed by biotech businessman Vivek Ramaswamy at 8%, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at 5%, and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson at less than 1%. However, in the latest USA Today Boston Globe Suffolk University poll, which also found Haley is in second and gaining ground in New Hampshire ahead of the January 23rd primary, as she continues to consolidate the not-for-Trump vote, The former president holds a 20-point lead over the former U.N. ambassador, 46% to 26%. While the former survey was conducted online on January 4th through 8th with 914 Republican voters, the latter was conducted on January 3rd through 7th via live telephone interviews with 491 GOP voters. The margin of error is plus or minus 3.2 points and 4.4 points, respectively. According to the Real Clear Politics average, Haley is also polling second in South Carolina, her home state, and another key primary state. 
and is tied with DeSantis behind Trump in Iowa ahead of its January 15th caucus. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. And here's the anti-Trump narrative from Post and Courier. It's no mystery that Haley will face an uphill battle to defeat Trump on the path to the GOP nomination for the White House. But her chances are growing by the day. If she's able to finish second in Iowa, to win in New Hampshire, and at least to claim a close second in South Carolina, then she will become the only viable alternative to Trump. And there lies the key to her victory. And the pro-Trump narrative from Breitbart. Though a very specific hypothetical scenario in the first three Republican primaries would indeed trigger a race between Trump and Haley. As of today, the former president has double-digit leads over Haley in Iowa, New Hampshire, and even her home state of South Carolina. Given that those who know her better don't want Haley to win the nomination, Republican primary voters won't make such an error. The GOP nomination still projects to be a cakewalk for the former president. And the nerds have a say from Metaculus that there's a 10% chance that the Republican nominee for president in 2024 will win in New Hampshire. Norway's parliament approves the world's first commercial deep-sea mining. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, The Telegraph, The New York Times, and BBC News. The Norwegian parliament on Tuesday approved deep-sea mining across 108,000 square miles of its national waters, paving the way to become the first country in the world to allow companies to dig for minerals like cobalt, scandium, and lithium on the bottom of the ocean. An international agreement on deep-sea mining in international waters is also expected later this year. Before companies can begin drilling, they will have to complete studies on the impact of marine life and receive a parliament-approved license. While this means mineral extraction may not begin until the 2030s, once it does, it's believed it will create an industry worth between hundreds of millions to trillions of dollars. 17 protected marine areas will also be excluded from drilling. The extraction, which will take place between Norway and Greenland in the waters of the Norwegian Sea and Barents Sea, will see sulfide deposits, which contain copper, zinc, and small amounts of gold, silver, and cobalt, brought to the surface via remote-controlled machinery. Cobalt is a key ingredient in many electric vehicle batteries. Compared to current sea mining endeavors, which are conducted, for example, at depths of 200 meters or 656 feet off the coast of Namibia for elements such as diamonds, Norway, which is currently Europe's largest producer of hydropower and Western Europe's largest oil producer, is proposing seabed extractions at depths of 2.2 miles below the ocean's surface. Meanwhile, the Norway Institute of Marine Research warns that the Parliament's decision is based on just a small sample of research that has been applied to the whole prospective drilling area, estimating that it will take five to ten years to complete the necessary research on impacted species before extraction can begin. Critics like the Environmental Justice Foundation say deep-sea mining is not necessary for a transition to renewable energy. Instead, it said combining a circular economy, new technology, and recycling could cut cumulative mineral demands by 58% by 2050. Thanks, Melissa. We have a narrative A on this story from Oceana.org. The proposed deep-sea mining industry will wipe out vast amounts of non-microbial species if its thunderous machines are allowed to operate on the ocean floor. 
First, the noise pollution will send the larger predator fish fleeing away. Then, once they begin kicking sediment up on the seabed, those particles will choke all the smaller prey fish to death. Furthermore, the polymetallic nodules that rest on the ocean floor are where animals like sponges and worms live, which means their lives will also be cut short due to the cobalt industry boom. The Harvard International Review brings us Narrative B. While governments should take necessary precautions and conduct research before greenlighting deep-sea mining, they shouldn't take too long in the face of the far greater enemy of climate change. Rising sea levels due to fossil fuel burning risk making entire countries uninhabitable. So the future must be electric. Furthermore, mineral mining on land produces more harm than in the sea, adding human rights violations on top of environmental challenges. Deep-sea mining is the least harmful solution to global warming. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that at least 81.2% of U.S. car sales will be all electric by 2050. When I can take myself down that road of like, oh, we're not all just going to catch fire and die in 10 years or whatever, <laughs> run mm-hmm. out of food, then, uh, then I like to imagine all the creative, ingenious things we're going to be doing. And you see it. It could be magical. I'm like, yes, I do want a cell phone case made out of flaxseed mm-hmm. uh, wheat shafts. That sounds awesome. It's just ingenious things. Or the woman who's making uh, like single ser- single use plastic out of kelp because it grows so much. All that stuff is in- it's incredible. I just think people have the ability to make this a really cool world and get rid of all the problems that we have, you know, even though they seem completely insurmountable in some ways, like I think ironically the future, the solution is going to end up being more natural. It's going to be more along the lines of that kelp plastic. There's something called chitin, which is what makes insects hard. Um, It's like like the, their um, exoskeletons, but it's organic, but it feels like rigid and it's hard and it's smooth. You know, it almost feels artificial. Um, and I think that that's going to be the future, like making stuff out of chitin will be because it's natural. It can be, but it's super durable as well in its own right. And it's organic. When we figure out how to harness that, I think harnessing natural stuff to bend to our will is going to end up being the way forward eventually, because we're not going to give up on different conveniences and stuff that we have. No, but if you not. said like, and we okay, come well, this terms with that. This soda, the, the bottle, is made of chitin. And don't worry that it's insect bones, but the, we made it in a factory anyway. Don't worry about that. Um, right. You know, we don't worry that it's dinosaur juice boiled down into plastic. <laughs> we don't care about right. that. Um, we are all, we're part, we are bones anyway. Right. Why not drink Can I have bones? my soda? That's what I want to know. Yep. 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 But anyway, I think totally. chitin, if, if I was some sort of biologist or industrialist or something I would be, and I'm sure they already are looking into chitin. Cause I think that, that type of material, that type of like hard plastic, like polymer that's strong and natural, yeah. I think is the way to go. Our final story, South Korea outlaws its dog meat trade. Here are the facts as agreed upon by time magazine, Reuters, guardian, BBC news, Al Jazeera and CNN. On Tuesday, South Korea's parliament passed a bill to ban the breeding, slaughter, distribution, and sale of dogs to produce meat for human consumption, including food products made or processed with dog ingredients. The ban approved in the National Assembly by an overwhelming vote of 208 to 0, with two abstentions, will be effective beginning in 2027. 
Violators can be punished with up to three years in prison or up to 30 million won or 23,000 U.S. dollars in fines. However, the legislation does not make the consumption of dog meat illegal. The government has promised to compensate dog meat breeders, sellers, and restaurant owners to move out of the trade. However, the details have not yet been disclosed. Before the passage of the bill, the Korean Association of Edible Dogs had reportedly sought at least 2 million won or $1,500 per dog as compensation, in addition to the cost for buildings that will become defunct because of the ban. According to the country's agriculture ministry estimates, nearly 1,100 farms were breeding 570,000 dogs to be served at around 1,600 restaurants as of April 2022. Thank you, Scott. Here's Narrative A from the Wall Street Journal. The bill effectively prohibits dog meat lovers from relishing traditional food, which is important for cultural reasons. The ban's legitimacy must be challenged, as it infringes on millions of people's right to eat what they like. Moreover, it will be near impossible for the farmers and restaurant owners, many of them elderly, to find alternative sources of employment and income within three years and switch livelihoods so late in life. Narrative B comes from the New York Times. While dog meat has long been considered a delicacy by older South Koreans, it's unfair to cause unimaginable pain and suffering to millions of dogs. Plus, this tradition has fallen out of favor with younger generations. The ban was necessary to uphold animal rights, as most dogs are killed in unimaginably cruel ways. This bill should be celebrated, and a fair transition to alternative industries should continue. And the nerds have the final word from Metaculus, saying there's a 67% chance that reducing wild animal suffering will be a mainstream moral issue in America before 2200. I am grossed out. But I eat, I love meat and I eat it all the time. The only time I'm it. not grossed out by the fact that we eat meat is when it's in my mouth. Yeah, <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Yeah, the commercial, the industrial farming is pretty disgusting. It is. I was, but. the other day I um, reverse sear the chuck roast. So it was like a cheap roast that if you cook mm. it for a long time, it comes out pretty good, you know, but it's kind of gross. There's like weird connective fat and stuff in it. And st- it's not just like a clean, you know, a filet mignon almost doesn't look like food. It's just a red circle. You know, it's it's yeah. it's it's more appetizing to see <laughs> the raw version where this is like this is like an animal's shoulder or something like you can like see right. there's something going on here. And I mean, it was came out really good. <laughs> I baked it at 200 degrees for four hours till it got to 140. And then I turned it up to 500 nice. and, and seared the outside. So it came out great, but... Oh, that's a nice technique. Yeah, so, and that lets you get it edge to edge what you want. And I would prefer it a little less, but it was for my kids and stuff too. So I cook it mm. medium for them. Um, yeah. But like it's, but it's kind of like you can really see like this is a body part. You know, like yes. it's, this is, <laughs> this is, this is a body part of a living animal that is Yeah, weird. and like... If if we had to go out and kill our own, you know, if we were hunter gatherers again, mm-hmm. like I, I and I, and you had to do it individually, like if you can't kill this rabbit, you can't eat it or chicken right. or whatever, then I would not be eating meat, like not very much. I, or well, I, don't I know. would feel a lot differently about. It. I mean, the, the reality is, how hungry are you? That's how everything. I mean, you know, there's yeah, so that's true. And if you're a hunter gatherer and you. have come upon the ability to you you would probably figure out how to catch a rabbit if you were that hungry eventually or you wouldn't and you'd be dead so there's that too but um (laughs) yeah and and i i would have a you know if it was really the um you know there is something to be said for you know you 
did the work of killing it that gives you the right to respect it and eat it. Like that's a whole, I've never done anything like that because I'm not a real man. I try not to be judgmental anyway about what people do because I don't want the responsibility of being judged myself or I want to be able to take the high road. It's not, it's not altruism. It's self-preservation that I don't judge. Yeah, it is. It is a little weird. Being human on this planet is just a little bit weird and a little gruesome. It's well, we're kinda... cursed with knowledge. That's the problem. Like we understand what's happening here, like what the score yeah. is. We know we have neither the ignorance of just like, well, we're just organisms going around, killing stuff, eating stuff, getting eaten, nor have we like transcended the brutality of the world. And I think someday yeah. we may and be able to like elevate ourselves above it, maybe in a horrible demolition man way, maybe in a good way. I don't know. But um, so we're still in the muck, but we realize we're in the muck. So yeah. that's a problem. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, January 10th, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To find out more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news, or download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Verity.